0: On the day I retired, Rob, I had this hit article out on me. It said, you know, Fred Galvin, you know, retires. He's in charge of the task force that killed 19 and wounded 50. And that's when I started to fight back. I fought for 11 years to have the Freedom of Information Act request approved. Now it is. And all this information is in one source. Uh, You just see and read these accounts one after another where these senior officers betrayed their own you know, troops and they fall on their sword, they generally explain what happened. And you're just like, I can't believe, not only did this happen in the way that they said, but that these guys got away with that level of betrayal and lying and being caught lying on the stand. And what happened? They all got promoted.
1: An excerpt from today's guest, whose powerful book has been described as a tale showing how dangerous fake news can be when no one is willing to stand up for the truth. Author and retired U.S. Marine Major Fred Galvin is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. I've just released a brand new documentary. You can watch online for free on Tubi, the streaming service from Fox. The show is called Weather and Warfare, millennia to modern
0: time. Weather and warfare dramatically retraces the meteorological forces during battlefield engagements that doomed or saved civilizations. In 1588, more than half of the Spanish Armada on its way around Northern Britain was destroyed by storms in retreat back to Spain. Napoleon's attack on Russia was stopped cold by winter weather, as was Hitler's siege of Leningrad.
1: Just click on the link in this episode's description to watch on the web or download the app or watch on Roku for free. I hope you check it out. Welcome back. Today's guest served 27 years in the U.S. Marine Corps, beginning as a 17-year-old who rose from the enlisted ranks to become an officer. Serving in Afghanistan, Iraq, Kuwait, and elsewhere, he led the first special operations company in the Marines and earned 49 military medals and ribbons, including the Bronze Star. His book is called A Few Bad Men, The True Story of U.S. Marines Ambushed in Afghanistan and Betrayed in America. And retired U.S. Marine Major Fred Galvin joins us now. Major Galvin, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me as your guest, Rob.
1: Oh, we're absolutely honored, sir. And uh, before we get into the book, I wanted to know a little bit about your military background.
0: This is described a little bit in the book, and uh, I grew up in mid-America and as a young kid our uh, mother who was a travel planner she took us on one of the tours to the east coast and we were able to see some of these revolutionary and civil war battlefields which having been from uh, the midwest i had not seen a lot of that and I had actually did any in-depth reading on the level of sacrifices that americans made one to um, fight and establish a free nation uh, from the british empire and then two to uh, fight and uh, ensure that no americans would be oppressed Um, that really in in the evolutionary process of the warfare and the sacrifice as a 10 year old child i was just in awe of you know literally the level of sacrifice so uh, that was in my heart as a young kid. So I was really mesmerized about serving the military. And this other gentleman told me like, hey, the Marine Corps is the first to fight. That was a motto of the Marine Corps back then. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of led me to uh, joining. It's interesting that uh, the gentleman that told me, oh, you should join the Marine Corps. He ended up uh, quitting before he ever went to boot camp. So I took his contract and uh, went to uh, boot camp in San Diego uh, did my first tour out there in California and when uh, they went to college uh, at the uh, University of California California State University at San Marcos became a stockbroker. Mm-hmm. then after doing that for two years, came back in the Marine Corps as a commissioned officer. And um, became an infantry officer, served out on the West Coast. And that got me into, um, after my first tour as a platoon commander, I um, went in over to force reconnaissance. And that's where I started uh, really doing these special missions. Uh, loved that type of role in the Marine Corps. And the, the caliber of Marines that were there was just phenomenal. And at that point, I, I stayed in that, uh, force reconnaissance type of, uh, units and all the way until, and I was an instructor at the Marine Corps version of top gun was my only time outside of the operational forces in the Marine Corps. And then, uh, right as the Iraq war kicked off, I went to, a, another force recon company from, uh, the Marines version of top gun I spent almost four years there before. Dr. Donald Rumsfeld, who's a secretary of defense for mm-hmm. Bush 43, uh, he directed the Marine Corps stand up a, uh, an actual component in the U.S. Special Operations Command, which since 1987, the Marine Corps resisted. Uh, and that's kind of an important point uh, there, Rob, because in World War II, the Marine Corps uh, had been directed by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to... Uh, have a commando-like unit because the British Royal Marines had stood up a commando unit that they were employing behind the German lines and uh, it was very effective so Roosevelt wanted the same he got it and the Marine Raiders were fighting in the South Pacific and after two years, not from the President of the United States but while Roosevelt was still alive in office as the President the Marine Corps had a new Commandant General Vandergrift who stated It is not in the best interest of the Marine Corps to have an elite with an elite. In one sentence, he disbanded the Marine Raiders. So there's several data points um, in history. Uh, Those two that I've just given you, and then after 9-11, Rumsfeld said all of the services, they need to increase the capacity for special operations to fight this uh, guerrilla type of warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the Marine Corps again, not only resisted, they battled against Donald Rumsfeld. And uh, then they said, okay, we will do a proof of concept to see if we can even compete with Green Brays and Navy SEALs. Uh, So that two-year proof of concept in 03 stretched all the way out for three years until 06, and Donald Rumsfeld at that time said, of course, there was many in the Pentagon that thought Bush Jr. would be a one term president like his father. Mm-hmm. That did not happen after the re election. Rumsfeld, who was remained as a secretary of defense, ordered the Marine Corps to stand this up. And he actually officiated at the activation ceremony. Dr. Rumsfeld was there with the commanding general of the Special Operations Command and the Commandant of the Marine Corps. So this is very similar, Rob, to an arranged marriage. And in that <laughs> comparison, we were the the love child that uh, after the marriage was consummated, we were the first subordinate unit that deployed overseas to combat as a task force. And uh, they, although that whole entire workup was one where I continually asked our general three questions, what's our mission going to be? Who will we be working for? so I can coordinate with their staff and understand how they want to employ us. And then three, what region, because we had two wars going on, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan. Some people were hinting that we may be utilized in the Horn of Africa, in Eastern Africa, which I didn't personally believe, uh, but there was some very limited special operations missions going on there to fight terrorism. Um, So I just needed to know how to prepare and equip and trained our our unit that had stood up. It was getting no information. These were weekly conversations I'd have with the commanding general and his staff. Uh, we found out a week after we got on the ship and we deployed. Uh, Eleven months later, that we were going to go to Afghanistan, specifically eastern Afghanistan. This was we deployed in January. Um, what year was that? That was two thousand seven. And every Marine I know loves a good challenge. Uh, However, our situation, you know, we were based out of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, a little swampland as flat as a pancake, no elevation. We did, to hedge our bets, I thought, you know, we could go to Afghanistan. So that's, we trained for a month in the high deserts of Nevada, near uh, just south of Reno, this area called Hawthorne, uh, to give us, uh, a feel for that month to work out standard operating procedures for operating in a uh, train such as that. Um, and it was good that we did that in March of 2006 because a year later in February, we, early February, we landed in Eastern Afghanistan. They put us in the Tora Bora mountains right there on the Afghan Pakistan border at the Khyber pass, the most formidable train in the world, snow covered mountains up to 14,000 feet. And, uh, they gave us a mission to uh, hunt down. They say it was the last place Bin Laden had been seen, which was true. Uh, and we were to conduct uh, reconnaissance patrols in the hills of the Torbor Mountains. It all sounded good until our commander, the Army Green Bray, that we were working for in Afghanistan, said, Hey, Fred, I cannot afford to have another Operation Red Wings, which is the story the right. Survivor was based upon. And so he said, You must have an immediate quick reaction force that can immediately go up and rescue if something were to happen in those mountains. And I understand why, and I had no argument, completely complied. So we continually requested to have aviation assets, not just insert us into the mountains to conduct our reconnaissance, but to be able to reinforce us if we got into a a scrape with the Taliban, as, as our commander had ordered me to.
1: We'll be back to the conversation in a moment. Now let's get back to my conversation with Major Fred Galvin, author of A Few Bad Men.
0: The, the tricky thing is we were in this catch-22 where they were our higher headquarters, the Special Operations Task Force, and that's spelled A-R-M-Y. Um, Army Green Berets have total control, 25,000 people compared to Seals, 7, the SEALs, 7,000. The Marines, we had just over 2,000. Uh, in special operations, so we were told this uh, mission impossible. Get up in there in the mountains. You need to have a quick reaction force. Uh, the implied task is they need to be able to get up there immediately. Resource being uh, helicopters, uh, <clears throat> so we we were immediately approved to conduct a overflight, and we did that and observed uh, what was going on in the in the mountains and then the, the train and. The environment was you know obviously snow covered very raw jagged areas like in operation anaconda but this is february uh thick snow high elevation tricky terrain Uh, so we continually uh, conducted rehearsals to do our deep reconnaissance missions while we wait on aviation assets but again and again every single day rob this was denied 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 and with the statements of you need to get up there in the torah boris and so after his staff continually like, hey you're not doing your mission up there in the torah boris hmm. i said you know we need the aviation assets that was a requirement by your boss my commander hmm. and uh so after the staff kept jerking our chain around i went back to colonel haas who was the commander and basically told him his uh his staff was stiff arming me and not allowing us to do the mission that he directed. And, uh, and that, you know, infuriated his staff, like, why would you ever talk? I'm a commander yeah. of a task force and my boss isn't you. It's the commander and you're an obstacle. And I believe you're intentionally trying to, uh, stand in the way. Uh, so this developed into this adversarial interservice rivalry, uh, a bunch of army majors against the Marine major uh trying to prove you know who's the real puppeteer who's in power Um, and that led to a situation where uh when we were fighting or we went into this village um and as we entered this village in our uh, humvee convoy everybody was lined up on the side of the road these were fighting age men And it had changed the baseline from three hours prior, which was a normal atmospherics and pattern of life, the the hustle and bustle with this roadside market, women and children, men, everybody uh, buying things. This time when we passed by three hours later, it was radically different. Just fighting age men lined up on the side of the road, looking like at us, lined up like a parade. And Mm -hmm. uh, we knew, Something's about ready to happen. We are waiting for a trigger and a car bomb detonated. Boom, uh, scorched the trees over hundred foot above us. And then uh, they hit our second vehicle, which was an ambulance. It visually was distinct and <clears throat> it did have thinner armor. And so as soon as that vehicle was hit right uh, point blank with this van filled with explosives and shrapnel, detonated right on the van, then uh, another vehicle, a sports utility vehicle, was coming down this dirt trail, three jihadists hanging out of the windows, firing their AK-47s fully automatic at us in an attempt to finish us off. That, um, obviously our Marines, this happened at 9 o'clock in the morning, so uh, we got up, aimed the machine guns, made quick work of them, killed them immediately. The driver of that vehicle did bail out of his vehicle into a ditch. Uh, He continued to fight against us. Uh, and he actually testified telephonically, video, video teleconference, sort of like what we're doing, from an American base in Afghanistan, as a prosecution's lead witness during the trial. A year later, uh, yeah, this—I know I'm spoiling some of what's in the book, uh, and it's mainly just a tease that you know people are going to shake their head and like, I can't believe that this Taliban fighter who was paid for the three jihadists that were in his vehicle, you know, we paid the equivalent of four years salary for each one of those uh, jihadists that we killed. Uh, we, we paid this terrorist leader. And in the book, it shows, uh, you know, the evidence of who this guy was. Uh, I mean, he was a key Taliban leader. Uh, it's just disgusting. And, you know, the prosecution thanked him and, you know, just kind of teared up during the, you know, oh, this guy's just a good man. So after we made quick work of that vehicle, Rob, uh, we got attacked on the other side of the road, not from vehicles. This was dismounted. These were in a a riverbed, so they had one echelon that was providing a suppressive fire from a stationary position while another would bound towards us. And they'd use this Hmm. leaping and bounding in echelons to advance towards us. Obviously, we're on a road with elevation inside the turrets of our trucks a little higher, you know, Looking straight down into this dry riverbed. So, when you got machine guns, the old axiom of uh, Marine infantry is take the high ground, maintain fire superiority. And, uh, you know, that was quick work. Men stacked them up like cordwood right away. And then um, we were still receiving sniper fire from a hilltop and they dragged a vehicle across the road in front of us, blocking us in there. This mass mob of unarmed men uh, formed at the front of our patrol, blocking us in the kill zone while we were still getting hit with sniper fire.
1: Hmm. So
0: the uh, the sergeant who was in our first vehicle, real tuned in Marine, uh, aimed high above the heads of this mob in front of us, fired his machine gun. That parted everybody like the Red Sea. And after five minutes of being in the kill zone, we assessed that even the vehicle that got blown up was, its communication had been damaged. We used hand and arm signals to uh, figure out their status. And then we uh, were able to depart the area. We were going in that village to do a tribal leader engagement. As you've seen, Rob, over 20 years, this hearts and minds counterinsurgency strategy wasn't too effective unless you're well, unless you're one of these defense firms that like Halliburton, Lockheed yeah. Boeing, that you benefit from a forever war and keeping right. it going. Uh, but, uh, I don't think any of our generals that lied to Congress and the media for decades, literally, uh, stating that everything was going swimmingly. The Afghan national army is, a uh, is stood up and they're effective. And, and that's, uh, we just need to stay the course and continue to train them. And, uh, That's our bid bid for success to get out of there. Well, we know how that ended. Um, Those were 20 years of outright lies, didn't have any return on investment. If these generals wanted any skin in the game, they could have literally sent their brides to a bed and breakfast in Bagram to see how effective that strategy really was. But that didn't ever happen. So anyway, we returned to base. We were back on base 20 minutes after this attack. This already had circulated via the first report was in the BBC radio that Americans had killed Afghan women and children. Then it started to circulate uh, on other media sources, the New York Times, Washington Post. They have Afghans after Mr. Pearl, uh, the reporter who was decapitated. uh, that, That became very dangerous, especially in Afghanistan, where. Uh, you get off the base uh you're you're very vulnerable and people knew that so a lot of news agencies were utilizing um, locals as their members of the media they would give them the bona fides to go out there and report and capture uh pictures and and they were their sources uh, well you can imagine how that works rob when yeah. you're in a area that is controlled by the taliban and there's coercion by a head missing here some assassinations well the the taliban became very smart on how to influence these reporters which are they would uh they were essentially their stringers they would go out there and write these stories that the taliban would use as propaganda and it went straight unvetted no fact checking i mean people aren't going to go out into a taliban controlled village and check facts no. so they just took it at uh, you know at face value that hey this is the truth and so these started to circulate and this was immediately after we got back on our patrol then we had uh um uh, yeah it got worse and worse <laughs> so uh immediately at that point there was a mass rioting uh, put pressure on the president of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai, who came out publicly and condemned us. The generals immediately kicked us out of Afghanistan. Uh, we went to; they sent us to Kuwait, where our battalion commander uh, met us with the commanding general of Marine Special Operations Command. And the first words out of our battalion commander's mouth: "Here's a guy who's observed us. We were in his formation. is his direct. We were the only." Uh, company to be stood up and deployed originally then they were forming one right behind us Mm -hmm. but the first words out of his mouth echoed what the taliban you know tribal elders in that village this is the first village on the afghan pakistan side so to set the stage pakistan we couldn't go into pakistan so it became a training sanctuary for the taliban they would train a jihadist once they're fully radicalized they would move them over across the border and into Afghanistan. And the first town that was there, what do you think they used that hub for? That was kind of like your Amazon fulfillment center. They would use that to link up with their handlers and take them to fight the infidels all over Afghanistan, Kabul, Bagram, Sangin, Kandahar. Um, so that little distribution node uh, is where we were going in that morning but the tribal elders from that little village body code that we got ambushed at, you know, they started circulating these rumors that the Marines that there was no explosion from the Taliban. There's no Taliban at all, that the Marines used slingshots with grenades. And this is what the Taliban elders were saying that we manufactured, that there was an explosion to, to give us justification that we went uh, we dismounted from our vehicles and we went door to door, sport killing women and children, uh, that we were drunk. Uh, they said that after we left and fled and shot up vehicles for 16 miles, they said, that then we returned and uh, threatened reporters and covered this up? Well, our battalion commander, I don't think he believed this. I mean, he was he mm-hmm. was a very egocentric person, but he was duped. Because he wanted to believe this, he he had a severe distaste, and I think that was because of his ego and pride. Of hey, this unit is taking the attention off of me. Uh, it was similar to, I'm not trying to preach at you here, uh, but like in the Bible where Saul here's Saul has killed thousands and David has killed tens of thousands, and you know Saul became outraged at you know how could my subordinate unit you know everybody in the battalion is talking about all this training that they're doing around the country with green berets and air force special operations and all Mm -hmm. this and that success just ate him alive for the prior year because he is the battalion commander the attention the glory is his and um so when he met us in kuwait and i mean i don't honestly think that you could rationally believe uh, people who knew Fred Galvin knows that we don't leave on a patrol at six o'clock in the morning drunk, that you don't have the commanding officer of this task force with another officer, a Marine captain. And this is in 2007. So we've been at war in Afghanistan for six years. People have been killed. I mean, they're using car bombs filled with explosives to burn. And when you've seen and you know the the result byproducts of that when people are screaming in agony i mean that's psychologically you don't sit there and decide i mean there's not a liquor store around where we're hey everybody let's get some booze and, and let's go door to door now but our battalion commander wanted to believe that that's he wanted us to be professionally destroyed when i say that i mean honestly the the decision that they made If they honestly believed that I was some mass murderer, would they Mm -hmm. have placed me as soon as they relieved me of command, they sent me back to North Carolina and they put me in charge of training for the entire Marine Special Operations component. So all of the Marines. I mean, mean, if you thought somebody was a mass murderer, would you put that wolf in charge of the hen house? I mean, obviously not. Uh, So that was a decision by the commanding general. Uh, who was also there when, he, when I, they didn't even have the guts to relieve me. They had me go and relieve myself. I mean, they were there, but instead of having the courage, which when somebody's relieved, generally that person is relieved by their superior and they go out and inform the Marines, this is what happened. This is what we did and why right. uh, they had the guts to do it in our case. Unfortunately, there was not that demonstration of intestinal fortitude, uh, They just said, you will go up there and relieve yourself. And uh, anyway, humiliating. I've been humbled many times. Uh, I actually take pride in being humbled not having an ego. That's how I believe all military leaders should be. Uh, What we do is we defend our country. We're fighting against an enemy. I believe you should have more of a mindset and a leadership uh, ethos. It's more aligned to what General Washington was in Valley Forge and in many of the battles where he was realizing, you know, his strength comes from the Lord, not from himself. Uh, he realized his vulnerable state and the strength of his opponent. Um, when our military leaders act in an opposite type of way, like they are almighty, that puts us in a very dangerous and risky place that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't be fighting from a position like this. But then it uh, enters into the investigation, and I know I'm getting way ahead of myself, so I'll let you ask the questions. Yeah, later, no, it's um,
1: you covered, uh, you know, the first three of my questions: uh, the incident <laughs> and, and the build up, and the, you know, inner division rivalries between the special forces, and that makes sense. But I want to have you back for part two Okay. so you can tell your story of clearing your name, awesome. yours and your unit's name. The book is called A Few Bad Men. Major Galvin, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we'll see you next week for part
0: two. Appreciate it very much, Rob. Thank you, sir.
1: That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Next time, the conclusion of my conversation with author and retired U.S. Marine Major Fred Galvin on his book, A Few Bad Men. The true story of U.S. Marines ambushed in Afghanistan and betrayed in America.
0: The decision was made to kick us out of Afghanistan. And and then over a month later, when the investigation was finalized, then we see, uh, you know, when a general makes a decision and the head of the state, Hamid Karzai condemns us, and they kick us out. You know, we've never seen a general in the American Army ever go back and say, Oops. Got that one wrong. Uh, so, the investigation was designed and it stated that seven of us be, they recommended be charged with homicide.
1: A powerful program you won't want to miss. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear.
0: Music licensed from Audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.